Actually, sorry. Great, good to see you. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Philip. I lead the church here, and we are going to continue together on our series of talks called The Trial, as Louise mentioned, uh, and the kids are following the same series, as she also mentioned, uh, and it's wonderful to hear how much they're benefiting from the same thing. Let me just pray very quickly. Lord Jesus, we believe that you're speaking to us this morning, and we ask that you would continue to do exactly that. We pray that we'd have hearts that are open to hear your voice and open to be transformed by you. Jesus, amen. The court, the trial story this morning, the story before the trial this morning is this. Anna Sage, Anna Sage was in trouble. She knew it was only a matter of time before she would be caught and prosecuted as both a prostitute as well as the owner of two houses of ill repute in Indiana and Illinois. Her prosecution would mean the single thing she feared most, deportation to her home country. And now Anna finally stood in the courtroom, having given herself up voluntarily, believing she had the trump card that would enable the judge to overlook her crimes and instead qualify her for a green card and citizenship to the United States. Anna Sage had hoped that despite her crimes and illegal immigrant status, that she could prove her worth to the US government by providing the information that would lead the FBI to their public enemy number one, John Dillinger. Dillinger had frequented Sage's brothels and one day asked her to a movie. Sage thought she'd found a way to, to stamp her green card. Dillinger was wanted in five states and Sage hoped that if she turned him in, her actions would qualify her for an invitation to stay in the US. So to stage the arrest, Sage made contact again with an agent, an FBI agent called Melvin Purvis, who was working in the Dillinger case for the FBI. Sage told Purvis about her upcoming date with Dillinger at the Biograph Theater on July 22nd, 1934. As she and Dillinger exited the theater, Purvis confronted the group. Dillinger tried to run and was shot and killed at the scene. So John Dillinger, public enemy number one in America at that time was dealt with, and all because of Anna Sage. However, on October the 16th, 1935, Anna Sage was still held responsible for her crimes, and she was deported to her native Romania. So she was neither accepted into America or approved of for her services to her country. What's the point I'm trying to make from that true story? I think if we're honest, all of us have an inbuilt desire, even need perhaps, for approval. We all have an inbuilt desire to know that we are accepted, that we're approved of, that we qualify, if you want to use that word. And if we're even more honest, the main way that we have of knowing whether that's happened is through the approval of other people. So we desire approval, we desire to know we're accepted, that we qualify, and it's really others that tell us that that's so. And we all want to be told that we are approved of, that we're worth, that we qualify, that we're accepted. And Anna's example is quite a dramatic one of a court case in America of her desire to be accepted by the United States of America. And she went to great lengths to try and get that. But the point is that all of us, in less extreme ways, will go to varying lengths to ensure that we are approved of, to ensure that we are accepted. 
And so, as Louise kind of alluded to before, we're looking at each week at one aspect of the gospel through in the book of Romans through the lens that Paul uses. Paul's the author of Romans, and he uses kind of a legal lens, a legal framework, doesn't he, to explain the nature of the gospel through Romans. And so last week, we looked at the prosecution, the things that disqualify us, effectively, in front of God. And therefore, this week, we're talking about the defense, i.e. the things that qualify us, the things that bring us into God's approval. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. The verses will also appear behind me. We've been in Romans 1, 2, and 3 in the first three weeks, and we're in Romans 4 now. And Paul has got something to say about the nature of winning approval. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 5, and then we'll skip towards the end of the chapter to verse 20. So Paul says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he's addressing his Jewish audience particularly, and of course Abraham is their forefather. Verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Jump forward to verse 20. No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his, Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So again, I think I would suggest to you this morning that to be approved of, So counted righteous is the kind of Bible language that Paul uses. To be approved of, counted righteous, of worth, in right standing, is the yearning of every human heart in some ways. Every human heart will yearn to be approved of. Just as an example, I was intrigued to see this week that Colin Firth, who some of you might uh, get a little bit giddy at the sight of, Colin Firth said very bluntly, as much as the next person I want to be approved of. As much as the next person, I want to be approved of. Somebody you might, not, you might think would be exuding self-confidence said very simply, as much as the next person, I want to be approved of. Every human heart to some degree wants to be approved of. And the sweep of chapter 4, I've read to you the beginning and the end, but the sweep of the whole chapter kind of contains one central argument along these lines. And Paul doesn't base his case study around Colin Firth. He bases it around Abraham instead. But he uses a figure, a character, a person around which to base his case study. And of course, his Jewish readers would immediately have realized that Abraham is he's our forefather. He, if we can base an argument around him, that of course is going to be a significant lesson for them. And the argument that Paul effectively summarizes around Abraham is this, that to know true approval... So not just to be forgiven and accepted, but to be delighted in and seen as perfect, or in his language, counted righteous. To know that, Paul's saying, has nothing to do with our merits and everything to do with Jesus' merits. 
That's the key argument through the sweep of chapter 4. And whether we agree with Paul's ultimate argument or his ultimate solution, that to know that involves looking at God and not ourselves, all of us, I think, would agree that at the very least, we do desire to be approved of. You might not use the word righteous, but we desire to be approved of, to be given right standing, to qualify, to be of worth. And all of us, whether we agree with Paul's solution or not, would probably have a range of solutions that we might use to meet this yearning. So I want to look at three solutions, if you like. Three solutions to meet the heart of the, 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 the yearning of the human heart to be counted righteous, to be approved of, to qualify, to be of worth. And the first one, I'm kind of caricaturing somebody, goes like this. This person would say effectively, I earn my approval. That's my solution to meeting this uh, human need, this human yearning. I earn my approval. And I guess generally, or broadly speaking, many people in our Western modern society would kind of conclude this is a, their view to an extent. To gain approval, the argument goes, you need to work for it. It's up to you. I guess the American dream in some ways is this mindset, this worldview. That it's up to you to work hard to earn your credibility, to earn your worth, to earn the approval of those around you, and the opportunities are around you to seize. And I guess all of us, if we're honest, might have at least one foot sometimes in this camp. We compile a catalogue of reasons, a, a list of evidence as to why we should be approved of as to why we should be approved of. And we've got all kinds of options, haven't we? All kinds of options at our disposal to bring evidence to the table as to why we should be approved of. Our job could be one, our salary, our car, our home, the next home that we can get to, the sp our spouse that we have, the behavior of our children, our looks, our clothes, the list is, is endless. All reasons that we can sometimes provide as to evidence as to why we should be approved of, why we earn and merit approval. And of course, modern society gives us now loads of tools to be able to do that, to be able to make the case pretty convincingly, doesn't it? Social media, I guess, being the obvious one. It gives us the tools to present the best reasons as to why we should be approved of. So therefore, we can select the reasons that we'd like to present. We can Photoshop them, filter them, craft them exactly as we wish, and then we can present them as evidence as to why we need approval. And then Facebook's even more powerful because it, then it gives you instantaneous feedback as to whether you have been approved of or not. As does Twitter. Straight away you can see, has my offering, has my evidence to the world, has it earned and merited the approval that, if I'm honest, my heart kind of needs? The view that I expressed by sharing that article straight away, I can get feedback as to whether that is approved of and therefore to an extent as to whether I'm approved of. If I share a photo of a recent engagement to a fiancé, I can get immediate feedback <laughs> as to whether that is approved of. And I guess if I think back to kind of earlier days and the irony of me giving an example about rugby after the recent utter traumas and disasters of the last two Saturdays is not lost on me. But I used to play a little bit of rugby to a far more moderate uh, standard back in the day. And in my mid-twenties, not to any great standard, but to a reasonable standard for about two years in my mid-twenties. And after the game was often a really key moment for me because everybody would gather in quite a big clubhouse. You'd have all the different teams from like the first team to the sixth team that were playing that day. All the opponents, the officials, the, the supporters that were there, the kind of club, uh, clubhouse, club people, quite a great atmosphere. 
But I used to really get quite nervous in those occasions after the game. Why? Because I was so keen to know, in simple terms, whether I was approved of. How was my performance rated? Would I be selected for the next game? Would there be a little write-up in the local paper? I remember really vividly always looking to see how did you, how did you rate that? What, is there approval uh, 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 merited to me? There was a Man of the Match award and little speeches made and that kind of stuff. And it was a really big deal for me to know, fr frankly, it was a bigger deal for me to know that than whether we won or lost. Was I approved of? And that's just my example. All of us have got examples as to how we can try and merit and win the approval of those around us. And if we're Christians, or even when we're just kind of exploring what it might mean to be a Christian, we can adopt, I would suggest to you, a similar mentality, needing approval, in front of God. So I guess in its most obvious form, you might say something that my friend said to me the other day, which is basically, if there is a God, and he holds me to account, then, to quote my friend, given my CV of broadly decent behavior, he will approve of me. Given my CV of broadly decent behavior, he will approve of me. And the inference is, and frankly, if he doesn't, then the problem is more with him than with me. Which is exactly the view that Stephen Fry expressed recently, if you might have seen an interview he gave in Ireland. If God's got a problem with me, then the problem isn't with me, the problem is with him and his character and his nature, because I have some pretty good reasons for my approval. And Paul is kind of tackling this view in verse 2 in verse 2 of chapter 4. And what Paul is doing is linking his assertion from the previous chapter that we looked at last week and which Reuben uh, and the, the two boys very wonderfully memorized and read out, which is that we've all fallen short of God's standards. And Paul is linking that assertion from the previous chapter and saying now, no one, not even the founding Jewish father, Abraham himself, the great patriarch, Abraham Lincoln of the Jewish nation, kind of. <laughs> not even he, not even he could, uh, could claim that his works justified him, so give him right standing, approval, righteousness in God's eyes. And Paul's saying it has nothing to do with what Abraham did and everything to do with what Abraham believed. So Paul is tackling that kind of mindset straight away. And if you are a Christian this morning, you will presumably have accepted Paul's first argument. You'll accepted his teaching that we've all fallen short, as the two boys said, we've all fallen short of God's standard. None of us can earn our approval in our own rights. These are things that you've heard over and over again, many of you. That only comes through Jesus. But if you're anything like me, even though we are Christians, we can sometimes live as though we need to maintain God's approval. So we know that it's been given to us through Jesus. That's what won us to our salvation, won us to our relationship with God. But then we can kind of get back into this camp of, I kind of need to point to the things that I'm doing to maintain God's approval. If you're anything like me, you can slip into a mindset where you're kind of looking over your shoulder a little bit for any hazards I've put in front of you. You're kind of looking over your shoulder a little bit thinking, I just need to kind of keep God on my side almost. Almost one misstep from me and God will turn from an approving God into a slightly frowning, disapproving God. Some of you looking blankly at me. No, Philip, it's just you. Just you. Wouldn't slip into that. But that can be where we can find ourselves sometimes as Christians. And so we live as though we need to present to God, a la Facebook, the reasons why we still merit his approval. 
And if you've lived like that, as I have, I can, it's exhausting, isn't it? Because you're constantly like looking over your shoulder, God, can you just pray, pray this morning, pray this morning, Bible understanding going well, life leadership going pretty well. God, these are my reasons why I really merit your continuing approval. And so I would argue that all of these types of perspective that I've just outlined, they all have one thing in common. They're all basically saying, look at me. They're all effectively saying, look at me. So whether you're, you're not really a Christian at all, and maybe you're, you're relying on other people to assess your Facebook evidence and provide approval, or whether you're a Christian and really you're relying upon your moral behavior and church attendance to earn God's approval, either way, you've got one thing in common. You're basically saying, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. We're all effectively saying, the approval I need comes from pointing the source of my approval, Facebook, God, anywhere in between, towards me, towards what I'm doing. I can earn it and I can prove it. And then the results of that are, I can tell you from personal experience, if we decide that's working, we feel pride. And if we're honest, we then tend to disapprove of those for whom it's not working so well. And when we realize it's not working so well, we feel, like I mentioned last week, a degree of shame and disapproved of by whatever source of approval we're looking for. Makes sense? And wherever you are on that spectrum, the common denominator is you're basically saying, look at me, look at me. And so I guess it's not that surprising to me that many Western, liberal, modern people have kind of rejected that way of doing things. They've associated it, not unreasonably at times, with the church or with, with traditional Christianity. They've realized that that kind of lifestyle seems to be, seems to can, can engender division between the approved of and the disapproved of. They realize that it can, at its worst, engender pride and oppression. And so many people in our society have rejected that way of thinking, and I don't really blame them, or you, or us. And so the second type of person, and again, I'm just caricaturing, but I'm doing it to, to make a point. The second type of person would say, no, it's not about me earning my approval. The second type of person would say, everyone is approved of. Everyone is approved of. They would say, I, I agree with the human need for approval. I agree with that. I endorse that. What I reject, though, is, is the pride and the division that comes from people trying to earn it for themselves. That's what I'm rejecting. I reject the idea of people being excluded, of being disapproved of. I, I, I agree. I approve of inclusivity. I can see that this previous way of thinking can engender exclusivity and people being disapproved of. So my worldview tells me that all are approved of, all have a, an intrinsic worth, inclusivity. So I guess one example of that worldview might be some of the modern primary school sports days that we see. Now hear me, I'm not trying to make a point about what sports days should be. You can probably guess the type of sports day that I would run. And it doesn't seem to be the type of sports day that many other schools are running. My point is that the type of sports day that says no prizes, primary school sports day, no prizes allowed, no winners, no losers, we all take part together, no children can lose or, or ever feel like being disapproved of, that's the kind of worldview that I'm just looking at. I'm not having a crack at those sports days. Well, I kind of am. <laughs> but what I'm really trying to say is that inclusivity worldview, what's at the heart of it is that nobody should be disapproved of. Everybody has an intrinsic worth. And I guess if you want to bring that kind of more general issue in towards a spiritual dynamic, it's the kind of worldview that would say 
all, all ways lead to God. All truths lead to God. Whatever your truth is, that's your truth. And all of our truths will, will lead to the same God. There is no disqualification. There's no one can be disapproved of for what they believe. All roads, all truths lead to God. So you might have heard of the example of the elephant. Where again, a friend of mine plucked this out of, out of some kind of philosophical lecture from 20 years ago the other day. And he used that example of how religions, spiritual, philosophical worldviews, it's like we're all blindfolded. You might have heard this before. We're all blindfolded. And as we're blindfolded, we can just feel one part of an elephant because we're blindfolded. So you might be, I might be feeling the, the leg. You might be feeling the tail. Somebody else is feeling the tusk or the, or the, or the trunk. And all you know is what you're feeling because we're a limited human being who's blindfolded. But if enlightenment comes, then you can see that we're all feeling the same thing an elephant. The idea being all of our different ways lead to the same God. It's quite a common worldview. And so what this kind of worldview is saying is that no one therefore should be disapproved of. We don't like the idea of external approval or disapproval. What's the problem with that? I guess really it leaves a bit of a vacuum, doesn't it? It leaves a vacuum of what is right or wrong, because who's to say? It also provides a certain irony because it isn't just all truths are fine, it's that truth that says that all truths are fine. You see the contradiction? And if you press hard enough in that worldview, you will see there's a very, very rigid determination to stick to one truth. But the other problem, I guess, is, is that who's to say what is right or wrong? And who's to tell me that when I instinctively disapprove of someone, how do I know what that's based upon? So we instinctively disapprove, to use a mild word, of another dreadful killing in America, in a college this week in Oregon. Another one of those. And we, of course, utterly disapprove the man that carried that out. But if I have no basis for making that judgment, where does that leave me? And so I guess if the mantra of the first group is, look at me, I will earn my approval and evidence it to you, the mantra of the second group is, is like, look at us. Look at us. Inclusivity, we're all together, we're all in the same boat and don't rock the boat. And it won't surprise you to know that Paul's solution to the human yearning for human approval is different. Bluntly speaking, his uh, worldview is that approval lies in Christ. Approval lies in Christ. Paul is not blind to the need for human approval. He understands it deeply. He was a man that worked slavishly religiously to acquire the approval of those around him, all of his qualifications and teaching and so on. He understands the human need for approval, in it, which in his language is to be counted as righteous, justified, right standing, and so on. But what he's saying is, and this is how you know it, not by earning it yourself, not by pointing to everybody else that you're like, it's through Jesus. And he deliberately, doesn't he, chooses Abraham, as I already mentioned before. He chooses Abraham deliberately because Abraham's the original Jewish father. He's the Abraham Lincoln, if you like, of the Jewish nation. He's the founding father. He's the patriarch. And Paul knows that if he can convince his Jewish readers that the way to true approval, true righteousness, true right standing is how Abraham found it, then he'll be on his way to drawing them into doing the same thing. And so for Paul, Abraham is the ultimate example of someone who achieved total right standing and approval and acceptance from God, not by pointing to himself or those around him, but by pointing straight back to God. Abraham believed God, and that belief, Paul says, meant he was credited with righteousness. It was counted as being his. 
The theological term is it was imputed to him. It was bestowed upon him, given to him, credited into his account as a gift. He didn't do anything but believe. And hear me, it wasn't his faith. It wasn't his faith that was counted as righteous. God looked upon him saying, that's righteous faith. No, no, it was his faith in in God, in believing God that he acquired righteousness. Let me give you a story to try and help show you what I mean. So there's a guy called Rick Hoyt, who in 1992 completed the Boston Marathon. He completed it, I think, in two hours, 40-something minutes, which is pretty impressive, but in and of itself, it's not hugely remarkable. Except if I tell you that Rick Hoyt can't walk, he can't feed himself, he actually can't even talk or use any of his limbs at all. He was tragically kind of strangled at birth by his umbilical cord, meaning he can't control any of his limbs. And so because of Rick's love for sport, it's his father who has pushed and carried and towed him for over a thousand cycle rides and marathons and triathlons and fun runs and so on. Actually, by 2007, Rick had been credited with completing 207 triathlons credited with, completing 207 triathlons. But can you see, Rick doesn't bring anything to the table. Doesn't bring anything to the table except his his love of sport and the fact that he trusts his dad. He trusts his dad. He sits there and he trusts the one who pushes him. And it's his faith in his dad that ends up meaning that he, Rick Hoyt, is rewarded He's rewarded. He's the one who's credited with winning some of those races and completing all of those races. It goes down into his accounts. It's on his name. All because he trusts his dad to push him. And Paul's point, let's just leave that picture up for a bit because it's a helpful image to drive the point home. Paul's point is this is kind of the, the life of the Christian. It's both the challenge and the privilege of the Christian. Both the challenge and the privilege of the Christian. The challenge of the Christian is to admit that no amount of work could ever bring me to the approval of God or the righteousness of God, as Paul's language used. Nothing that I can do could ever bring me to right standing in God's eyes. That is a challenge to believe that. Western society imbues us with the desire to prove our individual independent worth. The challenge of the Christian is to say, I could never do it. I cannot do it. I could never merit the approval of God. I mean, just to drive that point home for a second, because for some of you this might be difficult. There's a philosopher called Francis Schaeffer who gave a, quite a famous example. And he said, to try and help us understand this issue of not being able to earn the standard of God, meet the approval of God. He said, just imagine you've got a tape recorder around your neck. Slightly dated example. And the tape recorder picks up all the things that you say about how other people should live. So it's just your standards. It's not God's. But it picks up all the things that you say about how other people should live. All the commands and hints and things that you've given. And then at the end of your life, that tape recorder is played back to you of just the things that you've said about how other human beings could live. Could you honestly say that you'd lived up to even your own standards? Is the point that Schaefer makes. All the times I've said or expected or just inferred or hinted that people should live like this, and then the countless times I failed to live like that. 
I can't even meet that standard. And then go from Schaefer to Paul in Romans, who's saying, so how much further have you fallen short of God's standards? But the privilege of the Christian, if that's the challenge, the privilege of the Christian is to know that right standing, approval, righteousness in the eyes of God is a gift. It's credited to us by God as a result in his righteousness. It comes through faith. Rick is in his chair just trusting his dad. He's trusting that his dad loves him. He's trusting that his dad knows what he's doing. He's trusting that his dad can protect him. But every single time he crosses the line, he, he receives the approval. He receives the results of that. It's credited to his account and he hasn't done anything. If we just move the slide on to the next one, please. Thank you. And that is the privilege of the Christian. And hear me, this is the final point I want to make. The Christian's account is not just cleared. We've just looked at the debt that we owe God, how far short we are of him. And the privilege of receiving righteousness as a gift doesn't just mean that the account is cleared. The debt is gone. It means we're also then credited with Jesus' righteousness and perfection and his right standing in front of God. That gets put into his account. So the account is cleared of debt and then credited with buckets and buckets and buckets of righteousness and perfection and all the things that God feels about Jesus. That comes into the account. Let me just tell you one more story to try and help you see what I mean. In 2013, James and Catherine Patterson of Alloa in Scotland entered the National Lottery, or the Scottish version of it, and they believed that they matched five numbers in the Saturday draw in 2013, and those five numbers netted them £986. Pretty good result. Until their son double-checked their ticket and realised they hadn't got five numbers right, they'd got all six numbers right. They'd actually hit the jackpot, and they'd won £1,138,000. And Catherine Patterson's reaction was fascinating because she said, in a very kind of humble way, she said, I was so pleased with the £1,000 because we had an outstanding debt that we owed and the £1,000 cleared it. I was really pleased about that. And then I found out that actually I'd won a million pounds. I was rich beyond my wildest dreams. And it's a picture of the gospel. Our faith not in our work, but in the finished work of Christ on the cross, is a free gift. And last week we looked at it, didn't we? At guilt and shame, specifically. We just targeted one aspect of the gospel and how it clears guilt and shame forever from our account. It's all pinned to Jesus. And so we live every day without shame because it's all pinned to him. But we don't just stay there. We don't actually stay there. If we just stay there, it's a little bit like we live in neutral. We live just with the account cleared. Actually, the gospel brings us riches beyond our wildest dreams. The nature of imputed righteousness isn't just to have our debt cleared. It's also to then have all of the approval that God feels about Jesus put into our account. It's a little bit like going from minus 10 to zero last week and this week from zero to a trillion. The debt is cleared. Shame is dealt with forever. Zero, if you like. And everything that the Father feels about the Son is imputed, given, 
credited to our account. And that's why Paul is so keen to emphasize at the end of his passage why the resurrection is so important. I think it should come up on the screen in a second. Paul says, it, meaning righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul's saying the gospel is one of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's our trespasses, our guilt, our shame, our wrongdoing that is dealt with on the cross And then our justification, our righteousness or the approval of God in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross that we receive as he strides from an empty tomb. The gospel is not just a gospel of a a sacrificial substitutionary death that deals with the punishment for guilt and shame. It's also the gospel of death to life. And the reason why the resurrection is so important is because God's saying, I accept Jesus what you did on the cross. My wrath is satisfied. It is done with. And I bring you back to life as a way of accepting that. I approve of what you've done on the cross, Jesus. And Paul's saying, that's what's imputed and credited to you as well. The victory of the resurrection, the delight that the Father pours upon Jesus at the resurrection is also poured into your account. The Father poured appropriate wrath, judgment for our guilt and shame upon Jesus on the cross. And then he poured his approval and his delight and his love for Jesus as he stepped out of an empty tomb. And that's what is credited to our account. So if you're a Christian, you don't walk around in neutral. We're not at zero. We don't wander around looking over our shoulder, wondering whether God still approves of us. He does because our approval from him is his approval for Jesus. Does that make sense? Whenever you doubt how God feels about you, You don't have an emotional discussion with God. You remind yourself how the Father feels about Jesus. He approves of him utterly. He vindicated him entirely. He welcomed him from an empty tomb and then Jesus ascends back to heaven in total victory, total vindication of all that he achieves. Sits at the right hand of the Father forever and what's our privilege? To be sat alongside him in heavenly realms. All of the approval that Jesus must have received when he returned to heaven having achieved everything he set out to achieve. Can you imagine that? Imagine the singing of the angels and the trumpets blaring as Jesus returned to the heavenly places, having done what he set out to do. That is how, the God, how God feels about you. That is the approval that is credited to your account. When Jesus started his ministry, God said to, him, God said to Jesus, that is, my, that is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus enjoyed the well done of God. And then he ascended back to heaven to receive the well done of God again. And the life of the Christian is to be crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, and lifted with Christ to receive the well done of God. Some of you need to hear and experience right now the well done of God, the approval of God. Not because you've done anything great this week. Because you are in Christ, hidden in Christ, clothed in Christ, his righteousness in you. You are crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, you ascend with him. So you can know every day the approval of God. And does it mean that you can still grieve God? Of course we can. can grieve God. Does it mean we can still experience God's pleasure in other ways? Absolutely. But his approval of you, the thing that your heart craves, is guaranteed forever. Because it doesn't never lie with you. It lies with Jesus. So, 
We're going to close in a second by having communion together. And I'm going a little bit over time. I want to just to hammer this home with one or two or three little application practical points. Where do you look for your approval? Where do you look for your approval? Is it wrong to enjoy the approval of your friend or your spouse? Of course not. As Christians, we're called to encourage one another. But where do you look for your approval? Another question to help you analyze that. How do you react to the disapproval of men and women? That will help you understand. If you're not sure about how to answer the first question, second question, how do you react to the disapproval of men and women? And finally, if you're a Christian, what, how do you see right now, how do you see God's disposition towards you? How do you see God's disposition towards you? Is it the disposition of a smiling, a prove, approving father? Or is it a God who is satisfied that guilt and shame and punishment has been dealt with, but is observing, disapproving slightly of how you're living? Of course we can grieve God, but we can never turn him into a disapproving, frowning father. And when you get this, then you live with poise. That's the word I used last week about how the Christian should live. The Christian should live with poise, balance, equilibrium, total humility at how just far off from God we were and what mercy and kindness it was to pluck us from judgment and to deal with guilt and shame and total confidence and boldness that I'm a man or woman who lives every day with the approval of the eternal God all over me. We live with poise, humility, and confidence.